Good morning, everybody. Hey, it's a little loud. Good morning, everybody. Uh, it's good to see you guys. I'm glad to uh, see that you all have survived the winter apocalypse. Uh, how many of you guys got more than a half inch of ice? Oh, yes, it was a mess. Um, we're glad you guys are here. And uh, it was sad last week that we were unable to use the school. Uh, but it was a good time of reflection uh, because we realized that just because we cancel an event uh, doesn't mean we cancel our identity. Uh, the church is an identity we have in Christ. The church, by definition, is a gathered people that God has called out to be his people. And so we didn't cancel church last week. We had to postpone our gathering. But our identity is God gathered people was secure. So that's a little devotional nugget for your brain this morning. Uh, as we uh, get back into the swing of things for Hebrews chapter 8 is where we'll be today. I'd ask that you turn there uh, as we continue in the study on the book of Hebrews. Um, let me pray and we'll dive into God's word this morning. Father God in heaven, thank you for this morning as we continue in worshiping you. Uh, God, you have called us to be your holy people, something that we cannot do on our own. God, we recognize that you are holy, you are a holy God, and you call us out, you draw us to yourself, you gather us together to make us holy. This is not something we can do, but it's something that you do for us on our behalf. So God, we thank you. We thank you that you are indeed a holy, loving Father, a good God who loves your people. And God, that you do amazing things for us, for your glory and for our joy. And so God, now I ask that as we open your word in the book of Hebrews, God, I pray that you would give us a great uh, wisdom, great understanding. God, that you would humble our hearts and quiet our minds so that we could hear from you. Lord, that by your spirit, through your word, you would transform us to be more like Jesus together as your gathered people as a church. So, God, we give this time to you as we continue to worship and pray that you use it for your good name. In Christ's name we do pray. Amen. Hebrews chapter 8. Now, the point and what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ had obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since is it enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, 
for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. This is God's word for us. Friends, Jesus rescues us to worship truly and fully with a new identity and a new way of living together. He changes everything for us, and this is certainly good news. What comes to mind when I say the word worship? If I say the word worship, what's the first thing you think of? Many of us may think of bowing down to a statue. Many of you may think of chanting or some involved elaborate ceremony. Maybe you think of something a little more sinister like, you know, Temple of Doom or something. Maybe you think of weird rituals or or weird uh, rules for living, maybe a certain type of dress. What comes to mind when you think of worship? See, some of those things may be true for worship in general, but true worship goes beyond the external actions and framework of what it is that we do. True worship goes beyond actions and goes toward the heart's motivations. Worship is a reflection of identity and a rhythm of how one lives life in general. Not an isolated event, but rather an ongoing, uh, motivated reflection of identity. You see, biblically speaking, worship means centering your life around where you find hope. Wherever you find hope, you will build your whole life around that thing, and that is what worship is. It's, it's where you find hope, and, and the object of your trust is what you worship. It's finding your identity in something or around something and then structuring your whole life around it. That is truly what biblical worship is. You see, when we look at the Bible, we see in the Old Testament, God gave specific instructions to his people Israel to do certain things for worship. But at the end of the day, those items for worship were not the only object of worship, but rather it was just a reflection of kind of uh, their whole identity and whole life was surrounded around this understanding that God was their God and they were his people. Therefore, they lived out certain rhythms. They did certain things to reflect their identity and all. All of that was worship. So for you and I today, we have to reflect on what it is we center our whole lives around. What is the functional center of your life? Because that indeed is what you worship. Worship is not just the way you dress or the way you uh, sing music or maybe a prayer time you carve out here. or It could be whatever it is you structure your entire life around. Whatever you find your identity in, wherever you put your trust to get on with life on a day-to-day basis, that is truly your object of worship. All of us have some sort of object of worship. It may be your job. It may be money. It may be social status or fame. It may be a relationship that you have or don't yet have, but you're fixated on it. It could be even intangible things such as power and control. It could be guilt or fear. It could be pride and maybe your heritage. All of those things can be objects of worship if you put your hope and trust in them, if you find your identity in them. Hopefully, 
over the past couple of weeks, you've tuned into the Olympics when you've had power to watch TV. Have you guys been tuning into the Olympics? Is anybody like ice dancing, right? Snowboarding, curling, huh? There you go. That's a real man sport for you. Well, I I like snowboarding. I like to watch it. I like to pretend that I could be that awesome, even though I'm not. Um, and I also like bobsledding. You guys like bobsled? Yeah, the two-man bobsled, the four-man bobsled. We were watching last night, and these poor guys flipped their bobsled and went sliding down, upside down. I don't think that's what you're supposed to do, but it worked out. Um, they were okay. Nobody got hurt. Well, a couple of years ago, uh, a long time ago, actually, a great movie came out. Cool Runnings, right? The Jamaican bobsled team, and you guys know there is a Jamaican bobsled team. I think they're in, and honestly, I think they're in 29th place. Uh, they didn't do so well in this current Olympics, but um, I, I love the movie Cool Runnings. You've heard me talk about it before. It has a great, a great soundtrack, great positive influence. I have the VHS tape if anybody wants to upgrade me to the DVD. And I love, I love the movie Cool Runnings because it has, it has some great moral to it. It has a great story. It's loosely based on reality, uh, but not really. And uh, if you're familiar with the story, it's a group of Jamaican sprinters that, that have this great idea. Hey, we could be bobsledders, right? I mean, we're going to leave our island where we run all the time, uh, and, and we can maybe go to the Winter Olympics, and, and our sprinting ability will help us bobsled, right? And so the whole plot of the story is there's a, there's a team trying to, to, to gel together as a group of a four-man bobsled team. There's stories of redemption from their coach who had a checkered past and, and did something bad. And there's a story of, of them trying to represent their country. And, and, and all along the way, there's obstacles. You know, they're getting made fun of by the Swiss and the Russians and everybody else. But the Swiss in the movie are kind of like the ideal bobsled team. And so if you know the story, you see the bobsled guys are watching saying, we, the Swiss know how to bobsled really well. Like We want to bobsled like those guys. I mean, those guys are fast. Those guys are gelling tightly together. Those guys know how to bobsled. They win medals. We want to be like the Swiss. And so there's a scene where the guys get together and, and they start counting in German and they start doing everything like the Swiss do, thinking if we could just do what the Swiss do, then we can bobsled like the Swiss bobsled and then we will win medals like the Swiss win medals. But a point comes where they have this realization where they're like, you know what? If we walk Jamaican, we talk Jamaican, and we is Jamaican, we should bobsled Jamaican, right? They come to the realization that they are denying their identity, that they're not really reflecting who they are and, and how they are to be when they're trying to copy and pattern their life after something totally foreign to them. And so they start bobsledding Jamaican, right? You know, one for the money, two for the show. They, they change up their whole chant as they push down the ice. They, they paint their bobsled, name it Cool Runnings, and it's awesome. In the same way, you and I often struggle with finding our identity in other things by structuring our life around them, by worshiping other things. We forget that we are called, in this analogy, to be a Jamaican bobsled team together. Right? We're called to be together to do things a certain way because it reflects who we are in Christ and how we are to live. But we forget. We say, you know what? This Christian thing is not working out for me. I, mean, I, don't, I think the Bible may be true, but I don't want to trust God. I don't want to put my hope in God because when I look at that guy at work, he's getting all the money. So I'm going to pattern my life after that guy. Or you say, you know, I, 
I want to believe what Jesus says. I want to obey God's word. But when I look at it, I think there's so much I have to give up. When I look over here, that musician's getting famous. That artist is selling his work. That person is popular. And I want to be like that guy. So I'm going to pattern my life after that guy. It happens in the workplace. It happens in the schools. It happens in our family. It happens in, in our celebrity mindset collectively as a country. When you read magazines that say, if you have this kind of house, you will be happy. If you have these kind of relationships, you will be fulfilled. If you have this much money, you will be secure. If you can get this much fame and status, you will have power and control and respect. And all of that is a lie. It's like standing on the edge of a bobsled slope thinking if I could just be Swiss when all the while God has said, but you're Jamaican, bobsled Jamaican. And this is what God is writing in his Bible to his people. The author of Hebrews is writing to the first century Christian church who has great heritage, great tradition that, that God gave his people for hundreds and hundreds of years. And you read the Old Testament and think, wow, some of this stuff is great. And it's all leading up to God being this great rescuer, gathering his people together to give them ultimate joy, ultimate fulfillment. And the writer of Hebrews is writing to the church to say, don't buy into the lies. Don't buy into the lies of culture. Don't buy into the lies of, of society that will tell you these things will make you fulfilled and happy. Don't even buy into the misunderstanding that old-time religion will make you happy. Because it won't. Old-time religion exists to point us to Jesus. Old-time religion is not the end-all, be-all. It wasn't for the Jewish tradition. It's not for the first century Christian church. It's not for me and you today. You will not be fulfilled. You will not be joy-filled. You will not be reflecting your identity in Christ if you try to buy into something from the past. If that thing from the past, whole point was to point you to Jesus. So here's a few things that the Bible tells us in this chapter of how Jesus rescues us to worship truly, to center our lives around God, to structure our lives in such a way. The Bible tells us a few things about our hope and our trust and how we are to live. The first thing I want us to see is this, is that God always fulfills His promises. Therefore, we have hope. God always fulfills his promises, therefore we have hope. You see in verses 1 and 2 it says the point in which we are saying, and what we are saying is this. I mean the point. All seven chapters of Hebrews, the whole point of all of that is this. That's what the author is saying. The point, read seven chapters of Hebrews, and the point of all of that is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. All right, there's a lot of imagery there that we have to unpack in order to understand what the writer's telling us. He says the point of everything is to lead us to Jesus. Jesus is our high priest. You see, God has set up a, a priestly uh, thing going on uh, for, throughout the religious tradition of, of, of Israel. And so for hundreds of years, they would have a high priest that would go into the holy places of the temple to, to intercede on behalf of God's people, to be the mediator of the relationship between God and man. 
He would walk in and offer sacrifices and offerings on behalf of all the people. And just to say, on behalf of all of them, God, I bring you these gifts. I'm asking you to uh, grant forgiveness to all these people. On behalf of them, I'm the priest. I'm mediating this relationship between God and man. And the writer of Hebrews says that Jesus is that high priest. And get this, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. That's a huge statement. Jesus is not just some new priest. Jesus is not just some one of many prophets. Jesus is not just a good moral teacher. If you've heard those things, you've not heard the full picture of who Jesus is. The Bible says Jesus is such a high priest, he's seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty of heaven. That's a place of honor, that's a place of power, that's a place of equal standing with whoever's on the throne. That means that Jesus is on equal footing with God the Father. That God, the the one who has created everything out of nothing, the one who has said, I'm going to be God, you're going to be my people, I'm the king of the universe, I own everything, I rule everything, and I love you, and I want to bless you, I want you to be my people, I want you to find your ultimate joy and fulfillment in me. Jesus is seated next to that guy. He's not just some lowly priest, some little prophet, some good moral teacher, some awesome humanitarian. He is equal with God the Father, has all the power, all the control. He can dispense of grace as he sees fit for his people. Verse 2, a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. If you're familiar with Old Testament history, you know that, that at one time God's people were in captivity in Egypt. They were enslaved. If, if You should read the, the story. It's fantastic. Or at least rent the cartoon or the old movie, The Ten Commandments. It's awesome. And you can see that God's people were, were enslaved in bondage in Egypt. And God sets them free. Says, you can't be my people when you're oppressed and trapped in this. You, you can be my people. I'm going to lead you out here, give you freedom, give you joy. And because of that, I want you to live a certain way. Now, before he led them to the land of promise where they would have a big temple and worship God, they, they had a portable, portable church, so to speak. They did it for like 40 years. We've done it for 18 months. Whew, can you imagine? Forty years, as they would travel through the desert, they would set up a tent, a a place where they would worship the Lord and meet with Him, meet with God. And the writer here says that Jesus is a minister in the holy places in the true tent, that the Lord set up, not man, that Jesus is the true priest going into the true tent, being truly at the right hand of the throne of God. You see, all of this is imagery to let us understand who God is and what his people uh, and who his people are. They had a covenant relationship, Scripture says. Uh, Verse 7, sorry, verse 6, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. For if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. You see, Um, Well, let's keep going. It's so good, right? For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. 
for they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. You see, what happened is, is God said, I'm your God, you're my people, you can't thrive in bondage, I'm going to set you free because I love you. Not because you're awesome, not because you're doing great things, but just because I'm a God who loves my people. I'm a father who loves my children. I want you to be happy, so I'm going to set you free. Now, as I set you free, I want you to worship me in this way. I want you to follow these certain rules, not so that I will accept you, but because I've accepted you. Not so that I will love you, but because I love you. I just want you to live this way. And so he takes them by the hand, the Bible says, leads them out of Egypt, is taking them uh, to a land of promise, And that relationship is called a covenant relationship. It goes beyond a contractual agreement where I agree to do this, you agree to do that. A covenant is is more relational. And the whole beauty of biblical covenant is God takes upon himself to fulfill every aspect of that covenant relationship. And you see that God's people had an end to live up to, but they fail, right? It says right here, they did not continue in my covenant, so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. God's people could not live up to their end of the bargain. They broke the relationship, not God. See, if things are built on our promises, we will break them. At some point, we will fail. But if things are built on God's promises, we have true hope. Right? Verse 10, For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel. We're going to get into this in a second. Is that God makes a promise to have a new covenant, a new relationship, a new way of living between God and man. And he makes that a promise, and he always fulfills his promise. So friends, if you were putting your hope in something totally foreign, like your status or your money, or your relationship, or your job, or your school, or your career, or your social standing... Those things at some point will fall apart, and if you put your hope in them, you will be devastated. But likewise, if you were putting your hope in your good moral living, in your superior spiritual discipline, in your great theological insight and intellect, or your moral fortitude, those are good things. But if your hope is built on that, it will come crashing apart. I mean, the author of Hebrews does not knock The Old Testament, he does not knock the religious tradition. He actually says, God told you to do this. Do it. He doesn't knock it, but later on he says, look, those things are obsolete. It doesn't mean they're bad. It just means they have a purpose, and that purpose is to point to Jesus. And once it points to Jesus, look to Jesus. Right? You don't, you don't go to the Grand Canyon and see the sign that says the Grand Canyon's there. And when you get there, you're like, wow, look at that sign. It's an amazing sign. I've seen the sign. Let's go. If you walk to the edge of the Grand Canyon and the sign says Grand Canyon right there, you look at the sign, then you look at the Grand Canyon. In the same way, the Old Testament is pointing us to Jesus. The old uh, religious tradition is pointing us to Jesus. The Old Covenant is pointing us to Jesus, not to itself. The whole point is all of this leads us to Jesus, who is the true high priest, who is sitting at the right hand of God the Father, who is walking into the true tent that the Lord set up, who is establishing a new covenant. And all of this is based on his promises. In fact, he quotes verse 8 down through verse 12. He's quoting the book of, not the whole book, he's quoting portions of the book of Jeremiah written hundreds of years before the time of Jesus, the prophet Jeremiah is speaking on behalf of God, 
Telling God's people about, hey, you're, you're oppressed, you're in exile, it's not going well for you. And when you are feeling oppressed and in exile, don't cling to false idols. Don't cling to fake traditions. Don't buy into the lie that you would be fulfilled if this or if that, if you betray who you are, if you betray how you're supposed to live, if you try to buy into these things that will not bring you fulfillment. The prophet Jeremiah says, look, cling to God. It puts your hope in God. He is a true, loving father. He is making a promise that he will uh, redeem you and rescue you and set up a new covenant. And you will have understanding and true worship. And that is such good news. And that truth is for you and I today. So first and foremost, take this away. As God always fulfills his promises, therefore we have hope. Secondly, Christ exceeds any expectation, therefore we can trust him. Christ exceeds any of our expectations, therefore we can trust him. We see in verse 6, it says, as it, <clears throat> excuse me, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. You see, the writer says, look, we can put our hope in Jesus Christ because he exceeds our expectations, right? For a first century religious person, we have to transport ourselves there. First century religious person who is saying, look, um, I mean, there are people in the first century church who were total pagans, uh, grew up in, in the Greco-Roman world. They were, some of them were just super brilliant and philosophical. Some were very artsy. Some were you know, great merchants. Some uh, were part of the religious traditions of the Greco-Roman world. But many who were reading the book of Hebrews were coming from the Jewish religious tradition who were saying, look, I, our way of life is good. Right? I mean, the Old Testament tells us to live like this. Right? We're doing what God said to do. We're living how God wants us to live. Why are we throwing Jesus in the mix? This old way of life is good enough. And the writer says, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. You see, we put our trust in Christ because he does not only what's required, but he goes above and beyond. Jesus was not just a good Jew. He was the perfect Jew. He, he's not some good moral teacher. He's a perfect moral teacher. He's not just a good prophet, a good priest. He's the perfect priest, the high priest. He's a perfect prophet. In fact, he's perfect because he's the son of God. And we can put our trust in him because of this. Trust, faith, belief, it all comes from the same word. It is not just an intellectual understanding. It is not only a you know, good feeling, but it is ongoing relational trust in a person. So to put your faith in Christ means you have ongoing relational trust in Him. And we can trust Him because the covenant He mediates is better the ministry he has is more excellent. And this is good news for you and I today. And so I want to ask you this, as I said, I want to ask you where you put your hope and where you put your trust. We put our hope in things that we think are solid, 
But we know everything falls apart except for the promises of God. And I'll ask you, where do you put your trust? We put our trust in things that we think will meet our expectations. But Jesus exceeds any expectation we can have. So I want to ask you, what are the functional centers of your life, like where you put your hope? And also, how does that play out? What are the functional saviors in your life? Because if you're putting your hope in money, you say, money is my hope, and you say, well, my, that's my functional center, so I'm going to base my whole life on making lots of money, and your functional savior would be the raise you get or the bonus you get or the money you rip off from knocking off a bank or whatever you do. I'm not saying you should do it. I'm just saying it has been done by somebody. Not me. If your functional center, you know, is your career path, you put everything into your career. None of these things are bad, but if they become the ultimate thing in your life and you put your ultimate hope in them and your ultimate trust means you were, every time you get a, you know, a, promotion or you get more leverage at work you feel like that's my savior but the second you lose that your life falls apart or if you think i need this relationship to be fulfilled that's your functional center your functional savior would be whatever person fills that void and that person i don't care who they are will let you down if you just put if you're single and you put marriage on a pedestal you think you just get married that becomes your functional center and you think this guy this girl Maybe they will bring ultimate fulfillment in me and that will become a functional savior for you. And the moment that person lets you down, your whole world falls apart. I've been married nine and a half years. Love my wife. She loves me. But we let each other down sometimes, even on our best day. Um, she can tell you more stories than me. I'm just a faulty man. But it's okay because we based our hope and our trust not on me or her, but God. God is our hope. Jesus is the object of our faith. So assess where you are. Where do you find hope? Where do you put your trust? Because the good news is that we can put our hope in God because God always fulfills his promises. And we can put our trust in Christ because he exceeds any expectation of religion or spirituality or what it takes to be right with God. And thirdly, this good news transforms us together. Therefore, we can truly live lives of worship. This is where it gets just, your mind will get blown if you just sit down and read the Bible. If you read Hebrews 8, the back half of it is quoting Jeremiah 31. So I would encourage you today at some point, to go home and open Jeremiah 31 and just read a couple chapters before, a couple chapters after. Try to get the context for the book of Jeremiah. It'll blow your mind what's going on. You see, the writer is making this connection that Jesus is this true high priest. He's fulfilling the promises of God, so we have hope. He is a true high priest. He's at the right hand of the throne of God, going into the true tent. Because he's the true high priest, we can put our faith in him. We can put our trust in him. And then he quotes Jeremiah that says, this is the good news that transforms us. Let's look at verse 10. It says, for this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. 
And they shall not teach each one to his neighbor and each one to his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Is that not the most beautiful promise you've ever heard? That the God of the universe makes a promise that we can put our hope in? And that we know that promise will come true because Jesus is the new true priest bringing this to fruition. That he's the true mediator mediating this covenant relationship between God and his people. You know, if I were to mediate that relationship, it'd fall apart. If you were mediating that relationship, it would fall apart. Jesus mediates that relationship so we have faith and trust in him. Because we know we have hope in the promises of God and faith and trust in the person and work of Jesus that this will happen. This comes true. This is a promise God delivers on. It's something we can put our faith in because Jesus mediates it. This new covenant between God and his people. I mean, listen to this. He will write, I will put my laws on their minds, write them on their hearts. I will be their God. They shall be my people. Isn't that beautiful? I mean, because of the promise of God, we have hope. Because of the work of Jesus, we have faith. We have trust that this happens to us. We, have, we are transformed together. We have a new way of living. I mean, this is such good news. Our mind's attention and heart's affection are no longer on money and status and relationships and things that may let us down. Our mind is on the laws of God. Our heart has been transformed. It says, I will be their God. They shall be my people. You have a new identity in Christ. You are no longer defined by the sins of your past. You're no longer defined by the failures of your present. You're no longer defined by your uh, prideful triumphs or you're just total devastating, dropping the ball. I mean, that's what it says here. I will be merciful toward their iniquities. I will remember their sins no more. Any shortcoming you have, any failure you've ever had, the worst thing you've ever done is forgotten by God because he is your God. You're his people. We are his people together. And so our problem is we have a functional center that we base our lives around. We have a functional savior that we try to find uh, ongoing trust, you know, and, and, and we structure our lives around them. And the bad news is all of us struggle with that. But the good news is that Jesus rescues us to worship God fully in our hearts and in our minds because, because Jesus is mediating this covenant relationship, the promises of God are enacted on us. We have a new mind, verse 10 says. A new heart, verse 10 says. A new identity, because we shall be his people. I love that. It's not. It's a new identity together, like a collective thing. Jesus isn't like cherry picking some of you. Say, I'll take him, take him. You will be my people. Boom. You don't have to be good enough. You don't have to be better than the guy next to you. You can be worse than the guy next to you. The good news is in Christ you are accepted. We are gathered together with a new identity and a new way of living. So how this plays out for us is a new identity as being God's people and he is our God. And this is such good news for us. So in closing, I want to ask you this. Who or what is the object of your hope? Who or what is the object of your faith? 
And how is that playing out in your life? Could be bad things. Could be really, really good things. But if it isn't Christ, even the best of things is equal to the worst of things. The best thing you do, if it's apart from Jesus, is just as bad as the worst thing somebody else does. So so assess where is your hope, where is your trust, and how is this playing out in your life? Because the good news is God always makes good in his promises, so that's where we can find hope. That Jesus exceeds any expectations, we can have true faith and trust in him. And because of that, this good news transforms us together to be God's people. He is our God. We are his people. We have a new way of living, new minds, new hearts, and new relationships, and that is such good news. So if you're here today and you're not a Christian, I ask that you would consider that good news. I mean, the the gospel is a call to repent and believe. Repent means to turn away from something and to put your trust in someone else. And so to turn from sin, from idols, from even really good things, just turn from them and turn to Christ. And if you're not a Christian, I want to ask that you would consider that. The good news is you don't have to clean yourself up. You don't have to get better. You don't have to do better and try hard. You can be just an absolute disaster. (laughs) And God says, hey, you're my person. You belong to me. I will be merciful toward you. God is merciful toward you. Remembers your sins no more. If you are a Christian, we have to cultivate this ongoing uh, worship, centering our lives around God and trusting in Christ because it's really easy for us to stray. And if you're a Christian, please do not say, well, I've been a Christian since I'm eight. Me too. (laughs) But you know what? Some things really pull my mind's attention away from God. Some things pull my heart's affection away from God. Sometimes I honestly find my identity in other things than just being loved by God. I'll just confess that to you just so you can just feel the freedom to be honest with yourself. Sometimes it's happened. I will find my identity in being a pastor. Well, big whoop. Doesn't mean God loves me any more or any less. My identity is not in what I do. My identity is that God has rescued me in Christ. And it's the same for you, no matter what your career or what your relationship status. So if you're a Christian, man, just join me in repenting from from good things. We need to repent from good things. Most of us are just too good for our own good. We feel like we're too good for the gospel. <laughs> the gospel is the good news that God saves sinners, and we sometimes forget because we just, we're just so good. Well, you know what? I'm a disaster of a man. But thank God that he rescues me in Christ. So join me if you're a Christian in repenting, turning from sin and idols and pride and false humility and false functional saviors and turn to Jesus. So no matter who you are or where you are in your stage of life, that's what we should do. Let me pray. Father God, thank you for your goodness to us. God, I thank you for sustaining us. As your people, as you've done for generations, God, when we open the Bible and we see that you are a loving father who chases down your wayward children, God, that you are like a loving husband who chases down a wayward bride, God, that you are merciful and patient and kind toward your people, God, we often fall into despair because of our guilt and shame and foolish living, but God, I thank you that you were so kind to us. So Lord, I pray that you would lift up our eyes and lift up our heads to gaze upon your kindness to us, that we would not despair because of our brokenness, but God, we would find hope in you.
God, I thank you that you are patient with your people, though we can sometimes be prideful because we have such great resumes or great moral fortitude or great uh, spiritual, intellectual insight. And God, I pray that you would humble us from that and that we would not put our trust in our spiritual resumes, but God, we would put our trust in Christ. That we are not our true priest, but Jesus is our true peace, priest. That we're not the mediators of this covenant, but Jesus is. So God, I pray that you would have us turn our eyes to Jesus who is indeed the author and perfecter of our faith. And God, for all of us, I pray that you would bring a great amount of joy, help us understand your grace toward us, that we are forgiven, that you uh, you blot out our sins and transgressions and brokenness, and God, that you shape us to be more like your son Jesus, and that this is such good news, that in this good news there's no fear, there's no guilt, there's no shame. But God, there's great joy. God, I pray that you would enact that great joy within our hearts and minds. God, within this community, that we would be a community of joy, understanding grace more and more so that we can not only be recipients of grace, but God, that we could, we could be dispensers of grace, that we could take the grace you give us and just, just throw it out there to our families and friends and coworkers and fellow students. God, in all things, I pray that you would continue to work out things for your glory and for our good and that the good news of Jesus would ripple from this place out to the nations. We ask this in Christ's holy name. Amen.